goes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Code pink for freedom, code pink for peace. That was Code Pink by Emma's Revolution. My name is Leonardo Flores of Code Pink. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show presented by WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, and many other community radio stations like Western Mass Community Broadcasting, WMCB-LP 107.9 FM. We are also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Check out our website at codepink.org radio, where you'll find all of our episodes. On today's program, I speak with Terry Matson about recent revelations in uh, former Defense Secretary Mark Esper's book about the hybrid war in Venezuela and just how close we, the United States was to perf- conducting military action there. And on the second half of the program, I'm joined by Claudia de la Cruz, the co-executive director of the People's Forum, and we discuss the People's Summit, which is a three-day summit happening in LA from June 8th through 10th. It's an alternative to the Summit of the Americas, but it's an alternative that actually represents the people not only of this country, but the entire hemisphere. But first, some news. The European Human Rights Commissioner urged UK Home Secretary Preeti Patel not to extradite Julian Assange to the United States as pressure mounts on her over this decision. Argentinian Nobel Peace Prize winner Adolfo Pérez Esquivel has also written to Patel. I join the growing collective concern about the violations of the human, civil, and political rights of Mr. Julian Assange, Pérez Esquivel wrote. He called the extradition request illegal and abusive and said it imperiled press freedom and could potentially bring fatal consequences to Assange. Political figures from over 20 countries wrote an open letter expressing grave concern over increasing threats of violence and assassination ahead of this weekend's presidential elections in Colombia. The left-wing ticket of Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez is leading in the polls, but both have received death threats, have been unable to campaign in certain parts of the country, and have had bodyguards with shields appear on stage with them at campaign events. The letter notes that more than 50 social leaders, including trade unionists, indigenous and Afro-Colombian representatives, peasant movement organizers, and environmentalists, have been murdered this year in an attempt to intimidate and eliminate Colombia's popular movements. It also raises concerns over military interference in the elections and the possibility of lawfare. Code Pink's Terry Matson, who will join me in a minute, arrived in Colombia last Sunday to be an international electoral observer at the invitation of the Permanent Committee for the Defense of Human Rights, one of Colombia's most prestigious human rights NGOs. However, she was expelled from the country and deported to the U.S. as Colombian migration authorities declared she was a threat to state security. At least one other electoral observer has had their entry into Colombia denied, raising alarm bells at the possibility of fraud. From Code Pink Radio, we'd like to send our solidarity and support to Alina Duarte and her colleagues. Alina is an independent journalist from Mexico who's been on this program many times. She and her colleagues at Sin Censura TV 
a YouTube news channel, have received death threats in recent days after the host of the program was threatened by a right-wing senator. Alina will be speaking at the People's Summit for Democracy in LA in early June. Code Pink will be in LA in that summit and will also be in DC for the Poor People's Campaign, Mass Poor People's Assembly and Moral March on Washington on June 18th. Well, we hope that you'll join us at one or both of these events as it's becoming clearer and clearer that the only way forward towards peace and social justice is through the streets. There's more info about the People's Summit on www.peoplesummit2022.org and about the Poor People's Campaign March on www.codepink.org together, including details on how to get to D.C. and where to stay that weekend. Now I'll hand it over to Terry for a conversation on Venezuela. So for our audience, um, we're going to talk about a lot of things today, and um, but all with a common thread. So um, we're going to talk to you about a series of events that have been unraveling since early May here in the hemisphere of the Americas in advance of U.S. President Joe Biden's Summit of the Americas, which is scheduled to take place in Los Angeles, California, June 6 through 10. So let me just introduce some of these events that have unraveled. We've seen the publication of Trump's Secretary of Defense, Mark T. Esper, the publication of his book, A Sacred Oath, Memories of a Secretary of Defense During Extraordinary Times. That was published on May 10. Also on May 10, the president of Mexico announced he would not attend Biden's summit um, and he said at uh, a press conference Tuesday morning, May 10th, that if they are not all there, I will not go. And of course, he was referring to the exclusion of Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Um, the president of the United States had not invited those three countries uh, to his summit. So this, I think, and it's also really important for us to couch this as a protest and not, not necessarily a boycott, although that may be coming. What also has happened is the appearance of easing U.S. sanctions policy against Cuba and Venezuela. And then uh, on May 18, 23 visas were denied to a Cuban civilian delegation that was hoping to attend the Alternative People's Summit in Los Angeles. Also on the 18th, here in Mexico City, a U.S. Summit of the Americas delegation led by Christopher Dodd met with the Mexican government with no results. Simultaneously in the background of all of this happening here in the Americas is the surrender of Ukrainian troops and the Azov stall in Ukraine. So, Leah, we've got a lot of, of things in this soup in the Americas right now. So, Maybe um, let's start uh, with Esper's book and the irony of some of the disclosures in that book, specifically the disclosures he makes about U.S. regime change in Venezuela and how ironic that is, um, given the reasons why Biden has excluded Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela to his summit. Yeah, I mean, there are some really scary things in, in Esper's account. And I think the first thing that to keep in mind is that Esper kind of portrays himself as the guy who doesn't want war. So here we have the most dovish, for lack of a better word, person in the administration who happens to be the defense secretary, uh, which is a little insane. But what he recounts is that it was the National Security Council that, was been that had been pushing for a military option in Venezuela throughout 2019 and 2020. 
uh, until he, until he was fired, basically. And the key person being uh, Mauricio Claver Caron, who's, who was the senior director for Western Hemisphere Affairs of the NSC, the National Security Council. This guy is now the president of the Inter-American Development Bank. And yet what Esper recounts is that he was basically in on, uh, potentially in on the plot to, to plan and finance Operation Gideon. And Operation Gideon was this kind of mercenary invasion that happened in May uh, 2020, I think it was May 5th, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And the plan there was to have, you know, there were two U.S. Marines that came in with a bunch of Venezuelan expat mercenaries, and they were going to infiltrate the country on speedboats and then go to Caracas and kidnap Maduro uh, or possibly kill Maduro. And, you know, when the news first came out that this thing was foiled, you saw a lot of skepticism in the media and they're like, oh, there's no way that this was real or that the U.S. was involved in it or, you know, that these were just some like crazy guys if this happened at all. But now in, in hindsight, after we saw the ha- president of Haiti, Jovenel Moise, murdered by mercenaries, U.S. trained mercenaries, Colombians in this case, and, and in which, you know, we have uh, evidence that there were U.S. actors involved in U.S. people who had been agents for the U.S. involved in the plant plotting and carrying out of Moise's murder. I mean, to me, it, it's really shocking that, that, you know, there hasn't been more investigation into, into just how involved the U.S. was, wasn't in terms of... Uh, uh, this plot to, to assassinate or kidnap President Maduro. And, you know, he recounts several conversations in the Oval Office. At one point, he asked Guaido if, you know, you know if, if Trump had asked Guaido, rather, if they wanted U.S. military assistance to overthrow the Maduro government. And he kind of demurred and kind of said yes, but didn't want to outright say it. Uh, and Esper quips with body Trump language, yes, exactly. <laughs> and Esper, Esper quits, quips in his book that really what Guaido and, and this Venezuelan opposition, these fascists, what they wanted was for the United States to fight to the last American in Venezuela, mm-hmm. which is kind of exactly kind of a parallel to, to what's going on in Ukraine, where the United States now wants to fight to the last Ukrainian against the Russians, right? So, so yeah, it, it's a scary book, and, and really what or scary. Uh, chapter because of what it um, reveals. And it also, you know, there are parts of this that are redacted because the, uh, I guess the Pentagon didn't want some of this stuff getting out, but it, he talks very clearly about how, you know, once these military options were not being considered as much, they had talked, switched to talking to le- about less direct options, like, a, like cyber operations and covert operations. Uh, they even talked about attacking a Venezuelan port and I bring this up because, again, we saw a cyber attack on Venezuela's electric yeah. grid in 2019. Uh, we had uh, this U.S. Marine named Matthew Heath. He was arrested outside of an oil refiner, refinery. I think this was September 2020, if I'm not mistaken. Arrested with, you know, surveillance equipment and grenade and explosives and weapons. So clearly there was something up. And there's a lot to this when, you know, when the Venezuelan government says and time and time again that they foil plots by the U.S., what we get from the corporate media is immediate skepticism that, oh, this couldn't possibly be true. But now we have the defense secretary saying, oh, yeah, there were all sorts of shady things going on in Venezuela at the time. What's so ironic to me is that he uses it to discredit the, the, the then president of the United States versus really just framing it just coming clean that this is U.S. foreign policy and this is how it's implemented. And it's really... Yeah, 
Absolutely. And one of the other things he talks about is, you know, he decries the militarization of foreign policy and how during the Trump administration, the first instinct was always to use the military as basically using the military as first response rather than as a last response and criticizing Trump, the Trump administration, and the Trump team again and again for doing this. And at one point, I, I mean, you, know, you talked about Mexico last week and too bad this book didn't come out in time for last week's show because he says that Trump wanted to bomb Mexican or drug labs in Mexico with missiles. And then when he was told that this would be an act of war, that it would damage the relationship with Mexico, that it would damage US global standing, then Trump kind of ponders it and he says, well, how do, how do they won't know it's us? We'll just send a couple of Patriot <laughs> missiles and, and we won't tell them it was us and nobody will know. They just say made in the USA on them. <laughs> Exactly. So, so this was kind of a, the dangerous level of discourse that we had going on at the uh, at the White House. And and while I'm always very critical of of the Biden administration's approach to Venezuela, where you know he's maintained these deadly sanctions, I think that is kind of one of the key differences, right? I don't think these um, uh, these military options are discussed as much as they were during the Trump administration, uh, which was a small mercy, I suppose. You know, there's there's something you mentioned. Um, earlier about in the meeting with the the White House staff and the former Secretary of Defense and Guaido that the presumption was the body language, the innuendo in the conversation was that, and I think this was in response to the constant questioning, well, you know, if there's a U.S. invasion, if the U.S. funds an invasion to Venezuela, will the Venezuelans fight? And there was never uh, any sort of direct answer to that. And the presumption was that the invasion would be fought to the last, as you said, the last US, the last US troop. And I, and I know you and I have talked about this for many years and when, talk, when referring to the Venezuelan opposition, but not the entire Venezuelan opposition to be fair, but that for there to be a violent coup, a military invasion, any sort of incursion of that nature, you would see opposition, specifically the Guaido segment of the opposition, all of those people sitting in Miami and watching the incursion on CNN from Miami. They yeah. would not physically be there, nor would their sons or daughters or any of their family oh, be on yeah, the they ground. Would, they would absolutely, and, and it's really, for the most part, it's almost the same thing with the sanctions. Right. The biggest cheerleaders yeah. of the sanctions on Venezuela are Venezuelans who don't live in Venezuela. Uh, they're living very cushy lives, either in Madrid or in Miami uh, or in New York. And they're saying, no, what we need is more and more sanctions. We need to collapse the Venezuelan government to strangle the people. And that's the only way out. And by out, they mean that's their only way to power. Uh, and, and of course, they're not the ones suffering. And by this point, you know, in, when, when they had that meeting where, where the military option was discussed, this was after the April 30th, 2019 coup attempt by Guaido, where, you know, early in the morning, I got a phone call. I was like, oh, there's a coup attempt in Venezuela. And I looked online and I couldn't find anything. And then I called a friend there and it's like, no, there's nothing going on. Things, things are calm. And then finally, we saw mm-hmm. on Twitter that, you know, it was kind of staged that they had taken over a highway or overpass in Caracas and they were pretending like they had taken over this key airport uh, just to see what the response would be of the armed forces if they would join them. Obviously, nobody joined them. And I think that's the, the key here, right, that I think the Venezuelan opposition, these the extremists have known all, known all along that there is absolutely no appetite 
within the opposition for a civil war because they don't have the people. They claim always to represent the majority of Venezuelans, that the, the majority of Venezuelans are always with them. But this is totally false. And I think eventually it kind of sank into the Trump administration too, that they, these people don't have the majority, that there's no way that the you know, that they could be possibly be successful in overthrowing the government without direct uh, U.S. military aid or in, in, intervention. So they would fight to the last U.S. <laughs> and it's always, yeah, it's always that demographic, isn't it? I mean, the wealthy people, that 1%. Um, so you mentioned that um, this demographic that lives outside of Venezuela is very pro-sanctions. They're not, you know, they have the, the finances. They, they're not suffering, um, at least certainly not the direct impact of sanctions. Perhaps family and friends back home are, but they directly are not. How, um, let's talk about U.S. foreign policy sanctions as U.S. foreign policy sanctions. And I would also argue as sanctions as hybrid warfare and then in that sense a form of military policy as well because it isn't just venezuela uh it's been cuba for almost 70 years and nicaragua on and off since the 1980s and now uh definitively with the enactment of the renaissance act last september or just before the elections presidential elections in november of 2021 so in the lead up to this summit of the Americas in, uh, in September, weeks away now, we have seen, I guess, sort of, uh, what the appearance of relaxing sanctions blockade against Cuba and perhaps the lessening of sanctions uh, regarding the oil industry in Venezuela. Can we yeah, talk a little right. bit about that? Oh, absolutely. And before I go into that, I, in the first question you asked the second half, which was how, how does this, these revelations by Esper kind of affect the summit of the Americas or, mm. or, or how do they relate? Well, I mean, to me, you know, when we talk about the summit of the Americas and why the United States is looking to exclude uh, Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela, the answer they give is that these are countries that don't respect the inter-American charter, which is the, one of the founding uh, documents of the organization of organization of American states and that they don't respect democracy and or human rights. But what Esper reveals is that they never cared about Venezuela's democracy. They don't care about Venezuela's human rights and that they're trying actively to overthrow the Venezuelan government, which is a direct violation of the Inter-American Charter. So this is just empty rhetoric that the United States is using for political reasons. And the political reason being that they're, they need the votes and the money that comes from Florida. And they can't, they don't want to cede this policy position or they don't want to cede Florida just to, to extreme right-wing Republicans. So they're trying to outcompete them in their efforts at regime change. But all of this is kind of backfiring. And then all this, I mean, is this exclusion of these three countries from some of the Americas is backfiring because as we've said, we've talked about on the program before, uh, you had, you know, countries in the region are saying, no, we're not going to attend, led by Mexican President Amno Andres Manuel López Obrador. I think the list includes now uh, Honduras, Bolivia, many countries in CARICOM, and usually CARICOM sticks together. So if 
you know, I think there's going to be a consensus in CARICOM not to attend. And I would imagine that almost every country in the Caribbean is not going to attend. And by not going to attend, I mean, not sending their president or prime minister, they might send a lesser diplomat to attend. Um, and Guatemala and, too. Guatemala? Guatemala. Yeah, Guatemala I, and Brazil, but for slightly different reasons. Guatemala yes. more for political reasons, because the U.S. is uh, very critical of their new attorney general and the Guatemalan president wasn't having it. And Brazil, uh, I think Bolsonaro hasn't been clear on why he's not going to come, but it's probably related to the elections and uh, in the campaign that he's got going on in his own country. And because I think he'll know that he'll face massive protests if whenever he goes out, outside the country, this is a guy who is despised uh, throughout the hemisphere. So in the face of this kind of uh, backlash from Latin America, from the Caribbean to uh, Biden's summit of the Americas, well, you know, he's had to start kind of a charm offensive. And, and now we're seeing, you know, a, a relaxation of, of sanctions on Cuba. And this has been welcomed by many of us who are in the Cuba solidarity movement, but welcomed with a caveat. And the caveat being, this is a very, very small step, right? Mm -hmm. So the, among the sanctions that, that the Biden administration recently eased were uh, about visas. Now the consulate in Havana, the US consulate is gonna be more staffed and they're start, gonna start issuing visas, limited number. So there are gonna still be many Cubans who are gonna be forced to travel outside of their country in order to get a visa to the US. Uh, there's going to be steps towards family reunification. Uh, they added flights to other, they, they lifted the ban on flights from the U.S. to cities other than Havana. They eased some restrictions on group travel. Um, they also eased some restrictions on e-commerce. E so maybe we'll see Zoom being unblocked in, in Cuba, for example. And they also eliminated the limit on remittances. Uh, again, that comes with an asterisk because they still maintain their sanctions on FinCIMEX, which is the Cuban agency mm. associated with receiving remittances. So unless that is lifted, what we're going to see is, okay, there's no more limit on how much you can send, but you're going to have all these kind of shady operators taking remittances and then taking a huge cut, maybe 15, 20% of these remittances going toward, towards these private corporations, where as through FinCIMEX, it was a very tiny percentage of of, of the remittance that's being captured. So, I mean, it is a positive step, but, and it, I don't think it's nearly gonna be enough in order to convince, for example, Mexican president Andres Manuel López Obrador to come to the summit. Um, and then similarly, we had a gesture of sorts towards Venezuela. Mm -hmm. It's unclear yet how to interpret this because, you know, the AP reported that the lifting of the sanctions, I don't think there's been specific word, or excuse me, official word yet on what the actual lifting of the sanctions are. But the AP reported that they're going to, the, the Biden administration is going to allow Chevron to renegotiate its license with Venezuela, with the state-owned oil company, but they're not going to allow them to resume operations. And they also lifted an individual sanction on a former oil executive who's presumably going to be handling the negotiations with Chevron. And that was this kind of a sticking point over the last several months was that Chevron had nobody to talk to because all of the oil executives had been sanctioned by the US. So talking to them would have been illegal under US law, mm. which is obviously ludicrous, right? But one of the things that's a little odd about all of this is that the US claims that this was done with the unitary platform's blessing, the unitary platform being mm. the latest iteration of the opposition coalition that features, you know, the most more extreme factions. Uh, and yet they came out with a statement long, not long afterwards saying that they had categorically denying that they had called for lifting of a personal sanction. So there's already infighting with the, the opposition because of this decision, right? 
And Which then, is nothing new, the infighting among the opposition. Oh, absolutely. That, I mean, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I should That's I should historical. That. I mean, it, it's so historical that to me, like, it's just obvious, but maybe for some of the listeners that they don't know that the Venezuelan opposition is just split into many, many, many different factions. And that's well, part Mike of the Pompeo problem. Well, Mike Pompeo eventually figured that out. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it took him several years. But. And then, but on the Venezuelan side, we got a statement that was significantly more hopeful. We had Delcy Rodriguez, the, the vice mm. president of Venezuelan, say, she tweeted this out, and I'm kind of paraphrasing. Uh, she said, the Bolivarian government of Venezuela has verified and confirmed the news to the effect the United States of America has authorized U.S. and European oil companies to negotiate and restart operations in Venezuela. So negotiate and restart, which would be a very significant change, a very important change in order for Venezuela to get its economy you know, back on track. It's already kind of on, tra on track, but certainly a lifting of oil sanctions would make the economy you know, you know, yeah. go, go off like a, a firecracker in terms of growth and, and would really help Venezuela you know, overcome its deficits in, in healthcare that has, been, has seen its healthcare system decimated by the sanctions. So, so it's curious that there's kind of this disconnect between what's been reported and what the Venezuelan government is saying. And I think maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle that, you know, sure. when it comes to the European oil companies, there's no sanction to lift per se, only the threat of secondary sanctions. Secondary sanctions being this idea that if a company outside the U.S. does business with Venezuela, then the U.S. can just take it upon themselves to issue sanctions on that company. But so maybe there's been kind of a, a back, you know, channel discussion. We're saying where the, that the Biden administration is now telling these companies that they're not going to be subject to secondary sanctions. That's, you know, educated speculation on my part, but we'll, we'll see what comes out of it. What, do you think this for the for the European oil companies, is this a Biden uh, overture towards them for having destroyed European trade with Russia regarding energy? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think uh, what we're seeing is that Europe is going to have an energy crisis and that, you know, because of sanctions, say on Iran, and it's, it's, it's still difficult for them to acquire oil. And then Venezuela presents a very obvious opportunity for them to, to, to get new oil. Uh, I think that's why, in part, why the uh, Biden administration sent officials, sent representatives to Caracas for the first time in 20 plus years with the White House and sent someone to Caracas to, to negotiate with the government. Uh, because of this oil crisis, the gas prices um, going up so high, both in Europe and in the U.S., I don't know if you know the oil decisions are, are affecting. Excuse me, if if the Biden administration is considering lifting sanctions because of gas prices here at home, I think if that had been the case, it, they would have done it maybe a month or two ago, uh, be, mm -hmm. because you know these things take an effect. There's a kind of a lag time. So between now and the elections, I'm not sure how much oil Venezuela could contribute to uh, the U.S. necessarily, but certainly for Europe in the medium term, given the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, uh, access to Venezuelan oil would, would be tremendously helpful for them. But expensive to ship it sure. across the Atlantic. Expensive. Yeah. To, I mean, yeah, certainly more expensive to ship it across the Atlantic than to just ship it straight to uh, uh, the Gulf of Mexico, which is where most Venezuelan oil used to go. Yeah. What, um, oh gosh, how much of this, um, you know, we're talking in terms of, you know, this change in policy regarding U uh, U.S. and Venezuelan oil, but how much of that, you know, we're couching it in terms of uh, consumer prices in the States and, and for Europe, but 
How much of this decision do you think is pressure from like Chevron and other US-based oil companies that they yeah. perhaps are losing market share, so global Chevron, market share? Yeah, absolutely. So Chevron is typically kind of when you see corporate reporting about this, they, they name Chevron as being the oil, only oil company doing business in Venezuela or with, with oil fields in Venezuela. And that's not quite true. There's many others. Uh, co- companies that provide services related to oil, like, for example, Halliburton. So there <laughs> definitely has been pressure uh, from Chevron, from some of these oil companies to lift the sanctions, specifically, uh, you know, pro- just before leaving office, actually, the, the Trump administration uh, let a license that Chevron had gotten, they let this license lapse, preventing Chevron from doing business in Venezuela. Before, they were still being able to do business, but instead of, you know, it, it was kind of an oil for debt type swap where instead of getting mm-hmm. paid directly with, with money uh, for this oil, what Venezuela was doing was paying down debt uh, that it ha- that it owes to Chevron. And this debt issue, and this is a slightly different issue, uh, there are many bondholders in the US who have Venezuelan bonds that haven't been able to be paid. And I know that they're also you know, putting a lot of pressure in on the administration to lift some of these sanctions so that they can get uh, their bonds uh, reimbursed. So thank you, Leo. It's always so it's always so great for you to join us as a guest and co-host oh, and friend. I, I love Sarah. our conversations. So. How long are we gonna stay out? The people now have the power, and they're using it. I mean, the United Campus Workers of Georgia are here fighting for fair wages, fair raises, and for fair funding. Workers of America, United Campus Workers of Georgia, three two six five. Ah, ah. Which side are you on, my people? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, my people? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, my people? Which side are you on? Which side? Chipper we're never talking and whipping the shopping carts They pack the beer in the walk-ins and stack the weird little boxes Keep our kitchen fridges stocked and our financial market solvent They clocking for a pithy fitty bucks and bear the coffin They're like 60 thrifty chuds and get spit on like sitting ducks And they are sick of getting So you ever wanted to honor them? Here's my ass for all my hominids Collective bargaining, Amazon and Target and FedEx and Walmart and we are to get workers run the company that risen in the argument so are you with them are you in el pueblo you need them i said i've been see though el pueblo you need them i said i've been see though el pueblo you need them i said i've been see though i said i've been see though i said i've been see though which side are you on my people which side are you Which side are you on, my people? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, my people? Which side are you on?
opposition of trading and passion for wages and cash, cause they shackle by capitalism. Imagine a minute, millions of average citizens planting the spinach and wax in the kitchens and stacking the linens, contractors and renters and tenants, the labor extraction for pittance. What if they coordinated to address the sort of state of it in organization? Cause fucking what? That's what organized labor does. And not even sort of, it's more of the crux. Taking the power from hoarders of bucks, big bankers offshore and they cut. Returning the value of labor to those who created the billionaires. Oh, it's us. So if you jaded and silly about waking up early, the earning bad. If you sad about burning, if you got a curious turning and had it with passively lurking, we got your back and we happy to have you out on the picket line. Actively working, going Which side are you on? That was Lingua Franca with the song Work. You can catch them and many other, other artists perform at the People's Summit in LA, June 8th through 10th. Welcome back. I'm Leonardo Flores, Latin America Campaign Coordinator at Code Pink. You are listening to Code Pink Radio presented by WBAI in New York City, WPFW in Washington, DC, and KPFT in Houston. I'm happy to be joined now by Claudia de la Cruz, Co-Executive Director of the People's Forum, a movement incubator for working class and marginalized communities in New York. And along with Code Pink, the People's Forum is one of the convening organizations for the People's Summit for Democracy, which is gonna be held in LA from June 6th through 8th. Claudia is a popular educator, community organizer, and theologian, and I'm really excited to have her on the show to speak about the People's Summit. Welcome to Code Pink Radio, Claudia. Thank you so much, Leo. It's really, it's really exciting to be with you. Yeah, likewise. So for folks who don't know what it is, can you talk a little bit about what the People's Summit for Demac Democracy is? Well, the People's Summit for Democracy comes out of a tradition of counter summits that have been developed um, in the region, countering the agenda of the U US and its imperialism and its institution um, via the, the Organization of American States. Um, and in such traditions since 2005, uh, unionist activists, grassroots organizers, students, people have come together um, to make sure that the people's voices are heard uh, as a counter of the lies and um, the agendas that heads of states that are again imperialist and neoliberal want to impose on us. And so we will be holding a counter summit, which is the People's Summit for Democracy in LA in um, LA Trade Tech, which is a, a college in Los Angeles, and it will be held from June 8th through the 10th, and we will finalize it with a march um, towards the official uh, Summit of the Americas, where Biden and, again, his collaborate uh, forces will be um, deciding the agenda for the continent without the people. Yeah, that's right. And I think I misspoke in the intro. It's June 8th through 10th. So we want to definitely stress that to get the dates right. And something you mentioned, I found really interesting because, you know, we're talking about this being a counter summit to counter the lies being proposed at the summit of the Americas. 
And just to give an example of that, you know, the last time the summit was held, I believe was in 2018 in mm -hmm. Peru. And the big theme of that summit was anti-corruption. But right before the summit happened in Peru, the president had to step down because of corruption charges. So these are the kind of the lies that we're seeing that, you know, we have these governments led by the United States, of course, we're trying to kind of impose this vision and agenda and really kind of like their own vision of reality on mm -hmm. the entire hemisphere. And that's not what it is, right? And actually earlier this week, we heard that the Biden administration uh, invited Spain to come participate in the Summit of the Americas. And that tells yet, you, that tells tells you really. <laughs> yeah. And yet they've excluded Cuba and Nicaragua and Venezuela. And in, because of that, we're seeing some countries say that they're not going to send their president. So can you talk a little bit about this dynamic that we're seeing? Um, yeah, I mean, again, it's like um, it's on brand for the United States to do things like that. Right. Uh, it's funny how you like mentioned the fact that they are inviting Spain, which which is a colonizing force and has been a colonizing force in the continent <laughs> um, for years. And it continues to be because we see about like the displacements that have taken place in a lot of the Caribbean has been a lot of like Spaniard companies buying off land and putting their um, hotels and all sorts of things. But, um, you know, it's more of the hypocrisy of the United States. It's more of um, this agenda of building and moving pieces according to their interests. Um, 23 delegates that were invited to be part of the People's Summit were denied their visas to enter the United States. Um, and again, it's very much on brand because the idea is to block, to block people to people solidarity, to block exchange, to, buy, uh, to block the possibility of people learning the truth of Cubans living in Cuba, of Venezuelans living in Venezuela and supporting the social, economic, and political processes that are being developed in these countries. Um, and I think what is taking place in the American continent, which we should not turn our eyes to, is that people and nations do not want to be ruled over anymore. They don't want to be ruled over by the United States. And I think Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua have led the, the, the rest of the continent in knowing that it is possible to build nation states without having to be under the boot of imperialism, without having to be under the boot of the United States. And that is threatening to the US. And so when you see a country like Mexico, like Lopez Obrador was very much firm. If you exclude Cuba, if you exclude Venezuela, if you exclude Nicaragua, you're excluding us all and we're not gonna participate. And he called a boycott. Um, and that says a lot about how things are transforming, not only in the region, but generally in the world. Countries have the right to develop their processes as it's uh, people need and desire. Um, no country ever tells the United States what to do. No country organizes alliances to block or sanction the United States or to put the United States on trial for its imperialist behavior around the world. No one country is attempting to uh, lead coups against the United States. You know, uh, and the United States has done all of this. You know, it did it with Celaya in Honduras, it did it with Dilma in Brazil, it's done it with Evo in Bolivia, it's attempted to do it with Chavez, with Maduro, with uh, Castillo, but like it has done it historically. 
And we're not even talking about the assassination of leaders around the world or the attempted assassinations, right? And so no one blocks the United States from entering spaces. <laughs> and so the United States who has done all of this is arrogant enough to say, these countries are not allowed in these spaces, which are you know, regional spaces, which are continental spaces, where these countries are supposed to be in, because ultimately that is where the agenda for the region is built, because the United States has that level of power in the region. And so I think there's been a shift in terms of the consciousness of the rest of the continent um, that is moving towards a more multipolar uh, way of behaving, a multipolar understanding of, of politics and economy um, that, that, again, challenges the unipolarity that the United States has tried to impose and has imposed, not only in this continent, but in the rest of the world. And so I think, you know, it's a, it's a very exciting time, regardless of like all the, um, all the obstacles that the United States might want to put. Um, it's a very exciting time to see CARICOM, to see, you know, uh, Lopez Obrador, to see, I mean, if you, if you think about it, Brazil, <laughs> like Brazil, that is like unthinkable. They have, you know, someone who is obviously not likable um, as a president. And, and he also is not very much siding with the United States right now in terms of, of this, of the exclusion of nation states into the summit of the Americas. And so things are shifting, my friends, and they are very exciting um, because it allows an opportunity for us then in the United States to do the work that we're called to do, which is to call out the imperialist behavior of the United States and organize against it. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely right. I completely agree. And then we also have in, in Bolivia, Luis Arce, Honduras, Xiomara uh, Castro, who's also said they're not attending because of this exclusion. And you touched on it a little bit, but Let's talk a little bit more about the, the Cubans who were banned from the People's Summit. So we're talking about 23 members of civil society, all from Cuba, who, you know, applied for visas because we invited them to participate. And the reason we invited them is because, in part, because Cuba is officially excluded from the, from the official summit, the Summit of the Americas. So we wanted to make sure that their presence was felt at the People's Summit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the United States engages in a very kind of deep act of hypocrisy in banning the Cubans because... In their entire discourse of this hybrid war on Cuba, the embargo, the blockade on Cuba, they talk about, you know, the needs of actual Cuban citizens and that they're looking out for, you know, Cuban, the regular Cuban people. Well, here we have 23 regular Cubans who want to come to the United States to speak to the reality of what they're living and they're banned. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the, of who, who they were and, 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 you know, why they were banned? I mean, the United States, again, picks and chooses who and where. Um, and it's important for us to not lose sight of why. And they do this against, again, to advance their interests. Um, it's, it was very interesting to me. It, it's not funny. It's interesting to me that the same week that they, um, that they met with, you know, Lopez Obrador and the Lopez Obrador came out with the, you know, calling for the boycott, um, they then decide to talk about regulations being lifted and the possibility of having remittance, you know, be something that could happen again, that families could travel in, in an easier way back to Cuba and that they would establish those things because they care 
quote unquote, uh, about the Cuban people. Um, and let's not be mistaken. They're not caring for the Cuban people. They care about the strategic, um, the, like the strategic force that countries like Mexico have to the region and that relationship. They care about how they are perceived in the rest of the world. They do not care about the Cuban people. It's not about the Cuban people per se. Um, obviously, it, it made some of the folks in Miami pretty upset, the fact that that happened, because obviously the folks in Miami would want for the United States to continue to harshen its blockade on Cuba. And so it's not about the Cuban people, it's not about the frictions that they could potentially have in Miami, where um, if you see politically, their concerns are more of a continental and regional piece because they're losing legit legitimacy in the region. And so that's one. Two, they didn't want the voices of scientists who have developed five vaccines in the middle of a pandemic with a blockade that has cost Cuba $130 billion in the last 60 years. They didn't want the voice of that scientist saying, well, despite the blockade, Cuba has had the, the ability to develop vaccines, not only to save the lives of Cubans inside of Cuba, but the rest of the region and the rest of the world. And the United States is blocking the possibility of US scientists and US people to benefit from that advancement. They did not want to hear on the cultural front from athletes that have, you know, been again nurtured and had have been uh, raised within socialist values to understand that it's not about making billions and millions of dollars when you engage in these cultural type of work and production, but it is about, you know, the 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 pride of a nation, and it is about being able to. Um, place it in the consciousness of, of the people that this is, an, this is a collective project and this is a collective effort that we are manifesting to the world as international athletes, as athletes that are coming out of Cuba into international spaces. That is something that the United States still, they don't wanna hear for the, from the regular educator in Cuba to learn about, you know, how the institutions in Cuba, again, are very much grounded in the values and principles of collectivity, of kindness, of collective construction. They, they don't wanna hear that education is not a business and they don't want that information to be you know, spread amongst the people of the United States because once it is, then we understand that it is possible to do this here. And so, it makes sense for them to block 23 normal Cubans um, that have been able, again, to develop um, practices and have been able to become experts in their fields and have been able to do for themselves and do for their communities and do for their country. Because once they do allow those folks to be in conversation with us, again, we are able to be re-energized and be deepened in our conviction that, that it is possible to build socialism in this country. So for the folks interested in the People's Summit, I just want to give the website, it's peoplesummit2022.org. Can we talk a little bit about the program? Because it's not just, you know, speeches that we're going to listen to. It, it's, it goes a lot deeper than that. 
Yeah, so I think something that we've learned from our comrades, friends, sisters, and brothers in the rest of the continent is that if we're going to do something that is highly political, we also want to do something that is highly energetic and joyful and brings forth the spirit of struggle, which is what ultimately keeps us alive and keeps us moving and advancing um, in the midst of crisis, in the midst of, of whatever obstacles are placed on us. So we're gonna have a lot of cultural performances. Um, we'll have folks that are based in LA, folks that are coming from um, Colombia and folks that are coming from different parts of the United States. So we'll have Combo Chimbita. We have a group called Quitapenas that is LA based. Um, we have MCs, rappers, K Solar. We have Lingua Franca. Um, we're going to have workshops in an art tent, um, doing stencils from dance workshops. We're going to have an art installation. We recently received about 75 submissions from across the U.S. Uh, to be able to build this art installation of posters that, um, again, very amazing, talented artists have taken some of the themes of the People's Summit and put their art to work. And so we're going to be displaying that art um, in the space, we're gonna have live painting, we're gonna have a vendor's market. Again, we, we are rejoicing in the fact that lie cannot prevail. <laughs> lie cannot prevail. Like we want to be able to have a radical imagination for a future. We know that socialism is not only something that we dream of, but it's necessary. It's necessary and it's possible. And we want to be able to have these conversations with people. And even if folks don't necessarily believe that, that the next step after capitalism should be socialism, we're inviting people to be in conversation with us and in conversation with each other about what is politically possible. It is possible for people to be housed in this country. It is the wealthiest country in the world. It is possible for people to be able to have, you know, access to free healthcare. That is possible. It is possible for people to be able to have their rights to unionize be respected. It, I mean, there's so many things that are possible. We don't even have to agree with socialism at this point, but there are a lot of things that are politically possible that are, that are based, um, that are not done, that have not been advanced because of the lack of political will in this country. And so those are the conversations that we actually want to have. We want to be in conversation around, you know, what is popular democracy? What does that mean in a country that has voter suppression still, where people are still segregated economically and in some places still segregated racially, right? We wanna talk about that. We wanna talk about what does it mean to build sovereign states and be in solidarity with each other. And so these are all conversations that we wanna have domestically, what our domestic issues are, but also how does the, the, how do the domestic issues that we face connect to the continental scope connect to the international scope. And so we're really excited to have the cultural component in relation to the, po the political conversations and hopefully the exchanges will serve to be able to advance our, our struggles. And to me, one of the really interesting things about a space like this, where we have people from all over the hemisphere coming is not just to be able to listen to them, to to hear them talk about the realities of their countries is particularly, I think part of the emphasis is gonna be on how the United States is unduly interfering in their countries for many of the speakers. But it's also gonna be a really cool opportunity for them to hear directly from people in the United States, not just in terms of 
us expressing our solidarity, but also us articulating our own problems that we have within this, own, this country, as you mentioned them before, so that they can take that message back and tell people about the reality in the United States, which is very far removed from what most people in the global South, in Latin America and the Caribbean, you know, hear or consume in, in, in the media or in entertainment. They have this idea of the United States being this kind of paradise, so to speak, but it's far from that. And so, so that's, that's gonna be that kind of dynamic and how that interplays, that is something I'm really looking forward to. And I, speaking of these panels, which, you know, and not to put you too much on the spot, but which is the one you're most excited about? Because we have a lot of really interesting panels with speakers that are really, I mean, if it were just one or two speakers, I'd still go, but we're talking about like 20, 30 people who are very, very bright and, and, and energetic and charismatic. I mean, we have amazing panels and I, I mean, I, it's hard. You did put me in the spot. I have to say no, <laughs> because I honestly do believe that there's so much and we have so many amazing speakers um, that is hard to choose. I'm very excited about the last plenary that we have on the 10th. The last plenary that we have um, on the 10th is, you know, voices, uh, the voices of the people. Um, and we'll have voices from, you know, different countries in Latin America represented. And so I'm really, really excited about that panel. We have had, we have had confirmations from um, comrades in Mexico. We've had conversations with comrades in Honduras. Um, we are looking forward for messages from Venezuela. So we're really, really excited about that. And I'm particularly really excited about that, kind of like how to put in conversations those voices from the United States with those voices in the, in the Latin American and Caribbean region. I'm really excited about Who Streets, um, which is gonna be a panel around militarization and police brutality. Um, and in that panel, we'll have you know, uh, comrades and organizers that have been doing a lot of work in the streets from Ferguson uh, to Seattle, um, you name it. And so I'm really excited about that. Thank you so much, Claudia. And once again, that website is peoplesummit2022.org. I want to thank Claudia de la Cruz of the People's Forum in New York for being with us today. Thank you so much, Leo, for having me. I'm excited to see you in Los Angeles. Me too. Looking forward to it. Once again, for more information about the Cubans banned from the People's Summit, check out codepink.org slash Cubans banned. Thank you so much for listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City, WPFW in Washington, D.C., and KPFT in Houston. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say code.